Okay, welcome to another edition of ThinkBox Radio, news, tips, and stories from America's coolest college makerspace. We're coming to you from Sears ThinkBox, the Innovation Center at the Case School of Engineering, the largest makerspace on an American college campus. Our goal is to share the magic that happens here and to inspire your own maker dreams. Okay, so today we're actually going outside ThinkBox and outside this world into deep space. We have with us Chris Carr. He's a senior studying physics and astronomy here at Case Western Reserve. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Robert. It's great to be here. So last summer, you made quite a discovery. Not many people discover a comet, let alone a whole galaxy. Can you tell us about what happened? Oh, yeah, sure. So last summer, I was doing research with, with Professor Chris Mijos here in the Department of Astronomy at Case Western Reserve. And so um, my task was to sort of look through these images of nearby galaxies. So you have these massive galaxies, maybe like M101 or the Whirlpool, Whirlpool Galaxy, as it's, as it's known in more popular circles. But one that was, was interesting was when I was looking at the LEO-1 galaxy group. So this is a collection of galaxies about 33 million light years away. Okay. <laughs> Quite far. <laughs> yes. And so for one of the, when I was looking through, I, I found this really, it wasn't quite a smudge. It was actually less than that. It was, it was more just, because I found a lot of faint things, but this one was just very unusual. It, to, to the point where I was unsure, like, should I mark it or not? Like, is it, is it worth uh, putting in the effort to and, and, and crunching through the numbers? So what happens is we, we mark it, and then we insert the, the sky coordinates of the object into um, this online database known as NED, which is, stands for the NASA Extra Galactic Database, okay. which is just a hub of all the known galaxies ever discovered by mankind. And that's a lot. Oh, it's a lot. Okay. <laughs> so, and this is a good way to, to determine, like, is this potential... Uh, galaxy is something that other people have found. Because if I put it in there and I fi find out, oh, this galaxy w was already discovered, say, three years ago by this other team, then, I, okay, we mark that as, okay, someone else already, someone's already found that. But this one was interesting. So we, we put in the coordinates, and there was um, a detection there, but it wasn't for a galaxy. It was for a H1 gas detection, which is essentially a gas... Uh, a clump of hydrogen gas there. Okay, so someone had seen this already. There, there was a gas search in the region. Okay. Just for um, gas floating in space. Okay. No, no optical detection. Oh, okay. So, like, I, I, I was like, okay, that's weird. So I marked that, and I think the next day I showed Chris this, and he, he thought that was strange too. And until I, I told him that there was already, uh, there was some detection there before. Um, it's a, an H1 gas detection. And that's when his eyes really, really blew up. Because I had no idea of the gas detection. Okay. But the fact that I, I saw something there optically right. must mean that there was starlight emanating from that region in the sky. And the gas detection was already a clue that something might be there? Yes. Okay. Which is something that I, I had no knowledge of right, at the point did. of discovery. But he did. Cool. So if you layer those two things on top of each other, yeah. a gas detection with with an optical counterpart indicating starlight 
put those two things together, you have a bona fide dwarf galaxy. And that's when things like really, really blew up. Like that's when we knew we had something special. Because this gal if it if it is if this is indeed a galaxy, we're we're talking about one of the faintest galaxies astronomers have ever detected. Okay. And that's because it's so far away or so small or both? Oh, one way we measure um, brightness with galaxies is something known as surface brightness, which is essentially how much light is it emanating over a certain area. So with this galaxy, it was mo- most ga- most bright galaxies. You they ha- they're usually emanating around twenty two or twenty three. Like only relative things are important here. And a lot of faint galaxies are around twenty six, twenty seven, and this is a log scale. So a difference between one is so it, something with and its inverse. So something that has a surface brightness of 23 is 10 times brighter than an object with a surface brightness of 24. Okay. And this galaxy that we discovered had a surface brightness of 29, which is far below any established thresholds that other people have found for low surface brightness galaxies in their in their searches. Okay, so it's distinct. Yeah, it's because not only is it very faint, it's also very blue. And when I say blue, I'm I'm referring to the, the stellar populations. So if you a lot of if you have a lot of blue stars, that means they're very young. Ah. Because usually when you find these these um, low surface brightness galaxies, yes, they're usually redder. They're which is more indicative of of older stellar populations. Okay, and easier to see. Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. But the fact that this one was so unusually blue, very red, low-surface brightness galaxies are very common. But the fact that this one was so blue and the fact that it's so faint means that this is a very bizarre object. Okay. I like that. A very bizarre object. Um, Chris, how old are you? I'm 21. And you discovered a galaxy, we think. (laughs) Would you be the youngest person to have discovered a galaxy? Um, I mean, how old was Copernicus when he did this stuff? (laughs) I have no idea. Okay, but I, I I imagine I'm I'm on the younger side of the spectrum. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank what you. a summer! So I read how this was done using um, a telescope that Case has at the Kit Peak National Observatory in Arizona. I didn't even know we had a telescope out there, the Burl Schmidt Telescope, which must be pretty special. Oh yeah. Especially Tell us about now. that. So the Burl Schmidt Telescope is a case-owned and operated telescope out in Arizona. It's part of the Kitt Peak uh, Observatory. Mm-hmm. And it's been chugging along for around 80 years now. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's it's amazing that it's still able to produce very very high-quality science at yeah. this point. Um, I myself personally did not do the observations, but one of our collaborators, his name is uh, Aaron Watkins. He was a grad student here okay. in the astronomy department. He was the one who actually went through all the hard work of actually getting those those deep space images I was talking about. Okay. So that was part of his doctoral thesis. Okay. So what I was doing last summer was really just looking through his images. Okay. And it was through that collaboration. And say, hey, you got something. Yeah. That okay. And I was reading where that telescope was made by Warner and Swayze of Cleveland, mm-hmm. who were, were like precision instrument makers of 100 years ago. And I know they were into telescopes and microscopes. And, and it's amazing. It's still a, a quality piece of machinery 80 years later or whatever. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, still, it's still going strong. Wow. Okay. Um, so, Chris, tell us what's so great about astronomy. It's got to be an unusual major. Um, 
what is it worth what makes it worth making your life's pursuit you're certainly right it is a rare major uh, I think in my grade, there's only like four or five of us. In total. Is that right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So my sort of effectuation with, with astronomy started very young. Uh, when I was six years old, uh, my family had moved to a new city. Um, I'm originally from Maple Heights, but we moved to Strongsville, another okay. suburb uh, in the Cleveland area. Okay. And it was my first day uh, at the new school, my new elementary school. I was only six years old. Well, they sent us off to the library to just to get books and of course when he when we get there they lead us to sort of the the, ch- the children's section sure you know like a lot of picture books uh, like fairy tales and things like that but when I was there I couldn't I didn't really find anything that was interesting to me so I was kind of just wandering about the library and I remember very very vividly um, looking at one of the one of the shelves and I saw one of the books it was uh, the Solar System Venus by uh, Isaac Asimov. Mm. So I was like, oh, okay. Oh. And I remember, oh, Venus, I, I, I kind of know what that is. I was vaguely aware uh, of the planets. And so I, I grabbed for the book and I checked it out. And it was as if the, the words were flying off the pages. Is that right? It, it was kind of like becoming aware of a, of a new world that no one else had, as, had, had really thought of. Because like Venus is a, it's a treacherous planet. Sure. Right, <laughs> it's like surface temperatures of like were eight hundred yeah. degrees Fahrenheit. The lead melts on its surface, and I thought that was so amazing. There was a whole nother world out there, separate from Earth, but yet so different. And that inspired, and that was the first of a long journey of of going to the library and checking out these books over and over again. Okay, so, so you're six year old. Six years old. It started the fascination. Yeah, Isaac Asimov, who's inspired many a scientist. And you just kind of stuck with it. Yeah, like it, those those books um, took up a lot of my time in elementary school, and and that was the beginning of a of a lifelong passion for astronomy, uh, and physics, and science at large. So that that was very instrumental. And in, in, so when I came to Case, there was really no question that I would study astronomy. Is that right? So you came here to study astronomy. What? Uh what did your parents think of this interest? Did they encourage it? Did they try to steer you into, I don't know, engineering, you know, <laughs> something with a job? <laughs> uh, my parents have been very encouraging since I was a young age. I would always tell them about fascinating things about the sky. Uh, uh, my, my dad bought me a telescope when I was young. Okay, you had he, one. Yeah. You're, and you're a kid who used it. I, I tried. We all have the friend who got the telescope, used it once, and was like, this is hard. I, I never I, used it again. I certainly tried. Okay. But my Could my, you see much from your house? Sometimes. Um usually on a very clear night like when there's no moon, um you could see some you can see you can certainly see the the prominent constellations. Okay. And, and some and on occasion the planets. Okay. You, you could see a little red dot that may be Mars or or so. Yeah. But you can actually see quite a bit if okay. if you're really looking for it. Okay. Thinkbox Radio is brought to you by the Case Alumni Association, which represents the engineering, science, and math graduates of Case Western Reserve University. We're the oldest independent alumni association of engineering and applied science graduates in America. Have you heard of us? If not, you've heard of our graduates. Case grads include Henry Dow, the founder of Dow Chemical, Frank Rudy, the inventor of Nike Aerosol, 
Paul Buchheit, the creator of Gmail, and Jeanette Griselli-Brown, the first female director of corporate research at BP America. At CASE, we're proud of our spirit of discovery and innovation, which is why we support ThinkBox, the world-class innovation center at the CASE School of Engineering. So with this interest in space and science, who were your heroes growing up? Are there like astronomy heroes? Oh, oh, certainly. I was very drawn to the the public uh, intellectuals uh, who who were really endorsing science. If you're talking about like a Bill Nye or a, a Neil deGrasse Tyson or a Carl Sagan. Ah, yes, billions and billions. Billions and billions. Um, um, Carl Sagan was a profound influence on me and still is a profound influence on yeah. me. Yeah, he wrote Cosmos. Yes, he was oh, the first. That was the show, right? Became a show. and Yes, and eventually, 30 years later, followed up by Neil deGrasse Tyson with his version of Cosmos. Carl Sagan really showed what it means to be more than just a scientist. Hmm. He, he was a public advocate for, for the expansion of science, for yeah. space exploration. He was uh, a philosopher. He was an activist. He was a humanitarian and he really showed me what what it means to be a shows that scientists have more than an obligation just to their work yeah but that they also have an obligation to to their society okay to their fellow human beings yeah to um, provoke change in the world yeah that will ultimately reorient society more towards human ends and of course, now you're another in a long line of scientists at Case. Were there any uh, scientists here who you admired or maybe admire now? I've developed a lot of close relationships with scientists here, um, like like the one I researched with, Chris Mijos. He's mm-hmm. been a profound influence on me. He's a fantastic guy. Um, also, the the chair of the department here, uh, Dr. Stacy McGaw. Oh, yes. He... He's always had an open door policy for for me to come in and talk to him. He he's done fantastic work. I'll say those two have had a really profound influence on on shaping me as a scientist, and I'm, I'm very grateful to them for that. That's awesome. That's awesome. You can get that kind of help here and guidance. Um, so, um, well, first I want to ask you, um, how brilliant was Einstein? Was he as brilliant as we think he was? Oh, most certainly. <laughs> I mean, I, I read like now. We're proving his theories now. Like he said things decades ago, and nobody knew what he was talking about. Yeah, if, if you're talking about the recent discovery of gravitational waves. Yes, that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, these are certainly things that Einstein thought about a century ago, and yet now we're finally, the, the technology is finally catching up okay. to the theory. To prove his theories. Yes. Okay, so I, I'm not casting shade on Einstein at all. Like uh-huh. he's certainly worth all, all the praise and admiration that we fall, that we throw on him. Yes, but I was reading guys like McGaw think there's flaws in the theory of relativity that we're going to discover yet, but haven't. Um, there there are a lot of outstanding questions. I imagine that challenges people like you. Oh yes, it, the it's unanswered cer- question. Oh certainly, because like, astronomy, I think more than. A lot more than other sciences you may encounter, mm-hmm. at least in my view. It really forces you to reorient your perspective towards life. Yeah. Because you're, you're talking about things that are extraordinarily old or extraordinarily massive. Yeah, almost it, unthinkably massive. Boggles the, like, the human perception. Yeah. And so it really forces you to, to step back from your from our often myopic perception of life that the, that these tiny, that the tiny minutiae 
that that we deal with on a day-to-day level it really in a way takes puts everything in perspective hmm. that i've always found very enriching and forces you to grapple with what is really important okay in life i could see that okay and puts you face to face with the fundamental questions of existence so like where did we come from um how did life begin how did the solar system ah. form where, yes. where did the galaxies and stars come from that we that we see that that populate the heavens yeah or where did the universe itself come from it, it puts you face to face with these questions yeah and in, in a way that that i find great enrichment not only of the mind but really of of the soul wow okay i think maybe that's where intergalactic came from so two years ago, you, stru- you started an astronomy program on the campus radio station, Intergalactic. Um, tell us about the show. What have you been trying to do with that, and how has it been working out? Uh, Intergalactic has been uh, a, an incredible experience uh, working with WWFM 91.1 Cleveland. Um, I started, I became aware of WWW at a open house event when uh-huh. I was still a senior in high school. Okay. And I was talking to the folks there and they're very open. You know, they have the programmers have great freedom in in determining the direction of their shows and of their content. They hosted a diverse array of programming from music. And so that was it was really rather instantly the thought came to me that oh I can just host a I can host a talk show. Okay. Did you think there'd be interest? Or you didn't care? I'm gonna do it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there, I thought there was an interest. Out okay. There because because um, it's not just an astronomy program. It's it covers all of science. I, I try to pull from topics in biology and and in psychology. Okay. And um, well, like you were talking, the origins of life sometimes. Yeah, because um, I've had great discussions uh, with with psychologists here about the about the science of personality. Um, I've talked to doctors about the the necessity of vaccines, and and I've even had some fun because every week, uh, not every week, but every year, we we host a, a Halloween special, and my sophomore year we talked about uh, the science behind vampires and zombies okay. and werewolves, um, and last year we talked about the science behind the paranormal, like behind oh, yeah. ghost sightings and oh, yeah. and the pervasiveness of these beliefs in, in, in society. Yes. And so uh, it's Is there a re- scientific evidence, by the way. Oh, spoiler alert. No, okay. but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it was, a, it's a great experience to really step out of your own box of, mm. of the rigid science of like f- physics and astronomy and really right. talk to very interesting people from other disciplines about their work. Yeah. And, and I think that through sampling all these, um, different flavors of science that eventually just the the common listener uh, just listening on their way back from work will will find something that grabs them and Mm. maybe they'll look into that more and it can kind of serve as a nice gateway to more science that goes just beyond the surface and and that's really what i'm trying to do with intergalactic okay to really engage people who may not think they were interested in science in the first place, but to know that, ooh, this, that's actually quite interesting. I'll pursue when, that uh, more. When should people listen for it? When will it go back on the air? Uh, Intergalactic will be back for uh, its final run in the spring, some point in mid-January or so. Oh, okay, you don't know the time yet? Oh, no, no. Th- okay. These processes, um, there's a whole scheduling process behind it, but if you are interested in finding out when 
Intergalactic and other great shows in WWR, you can simply go to the website, uh, org. Okay. And it will show you the entire program of... Okay, we'll do that. Okay, so final run. So you do plan to graduate. What does the uh, future hold for an astronomy physics major? What do you guys look to do for a living? Well, after this is is a lot of a lot more school because uh, from grad school you're going to grad school. That's the plan. Okay. Grad school and postdocs, and eventually, after all that hard work, you, if your goal is to continue in academia, to to work at a uni- at a university like this and a research university yes. where you can keep. Uh, looking into into the stars. Yes, where you can continue your your pursuits of uh, of knowledge, and so that's certainly what I want to do. I would love to stay in academia to continue my research, to continue um, teaching, and I I hope to continue my my scientific outreach in 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 a variety of media. Awesome. So I hope th- you do. You're off to a great start, Chris. Um, so with Thinkbox Radio, we always try to end the show with a maker tip. And in your case, we want to end with an astronomy tip. And I know that um, you volunteer at the Natural History Museum um, on stargazing night every week, and you give people some tips on how to view the night sky better. Could you share some of them with us? Oh, yes, certainly. Some tips I, I tell the, the the people who, who come out to... Uh, is well firstly is simply to stay away from bright screens which is which can be hard in the in the modern age because like these bright screens um it affects your eye what do you mean bright screens you mean looking at a computer yeah looking at a computer or looking at your phone because you're you're preventing your eyes from adjusting to the night sky oh okay you mean so while i'm stargazing don't look at my phone or yes okay yeah or limit it as much as you can okay and also, you don't have to splurge all this money on like very expensive telescopes at first. Like simple binoculars is is enough to get a very um, comprehensive view of of the sky. It is. I'll see all the cool stuff. Yeah, you can see uh, um, you can see Mars. You could. Oh. And and if it's out, you can actually see on Saturn the sort of like ears, which are like the that bulging is actually from its its ring. Okay. I, I know when I first saw that, it it was like wow, it it was really mesmerizing. But I I would certainly say just there's a lot of variety of apps out there that can tell you about interesting things in the sky. Yeah, stay away from screens. Be active. Uh, yeah, actively try to see what's out there in the sky. Pretty much just go out there and and do it. it sometimes it's not at pleasant times. You, because like sometimes the best sky may be at like one or two in the morning. All right, and and <laughs> and eventually we'll discover something. Eventually you'll you'll discover something. All right, that yeah. sounds great. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, well listen, we were here with Chris Carr today. Chris, thanks a lot. Um, this ends our second edition of Think Box Radio. I'm Robert Smith, your host. Our producer is Alex Zini. We want to say thanks to you, and remember our motto at Case Western Reserve is think beyond the possible. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Robert.